Hi, and welcome to Women at Warp. Join us as our crew of four women Star Trek fans boldly go on our bi-weekly mission to explore our favorite franchise. My name is Jara, and thanks for tuning in. Jared, With me today... <laughs> he keeps headbutting me and knocking my head into the bed frame. <laughs> With me, we have some very silly cats. <laughs> But seriously, with me today, we have Andy. Hello. And Sue. Hi there. And we are going to be uh, starting our next book club episodes shortly. But just before we do, I have a quick reminder about our Women at Warp Patreon. This is basically how we keep the show going. We volunteer our time, but we use the Patreon funding, uh, even just small pledge amounts from listeners like you to do things like pay for our website and audio hosting and travel to conventions so we can cover them for you and things like that, promoting the show. So um, if you're able to help out, we would love that. You, you can hop over to patreon.com slash women at warp. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash women at warp to pledge a small donation. You also get access to a lot of exclusive content and like one of the tiers that we've just uh, changed the rewards for slightly. You get to do episode watch-alongs with us. Uh, so we're going to be doing one of those later today on Savrosa. Don't go into the house! I know, so you, you've missed out if you weren't already a Patreon. Did I go into the house? <laughs> the house. Sorry about that, but uh, for those of you who are fans, yay! Not fans, patrons. Patreons, yes. Patreon. Patreons. <laughs> Oh, and another thing we want to mention. So we have a Goodreads book club and we are holding a giveaway for book club members existing and new, uh, which is we are giving away a copy of the Star Trek Prey trilogy, which is a series of three novels by John Jackson Miller and are uh, about the Klingon Empire across uh, the next generation. And they uh, they're pretty newly out. They were released uh, in winter 2016. So if you would like to enter the giveaway to receive those, a copy of the three books in that trilogy, send us an email at crew at women at warp.com and just let us know that you want to enter the giveaway to win a copy of the Star Trek Prey trilogy. So the deadline is going to be two weeks from the release of this episode. So February 26th. So before February 26th, join our Goodreads book club, or if you're already a member, either way, send us an email at crewatwomenatwarp.com. Let us know you're a member of the group. We'll verify that and we'll put you in the draw to win the series of the Prey trilogy. All right, um, I'm going to stop messing up what I'm trying to say. And... <laughs> introduce our episode. Um, so we have a book club on Goodreads, for those of you who weren't aware, and that's where we discuss the books that we're reading, like the series, the Legacies Trilogy, which is a series of three books by different authors that loosely revolve around an adventure that number one from the cage had in sort of in her time serving under Robert April, and then how the ramifications of that came back into uh, an adventure with Kirk and Spock. So yeah, do we have, um, does anyone else want to maybe give like a little introduction of, say book, should we start with book one? I think we should start with book three and work our way backwards. <laughs> yeah, we could. <laughs> no, book one, book one. Um, Captain to Captain by Greg Cox. Yeah, okay, that guy. Um, so we meet Una, also known as Number One, and she comes to the Enterprise, and it seems like it's on a fairly straightforward, like, hey, how you doing kind of mission. But then she just totally goes rogue, and she steals this alien artifact and, like, wanders away while Kirk and Spock pursue her. And it turns out that she, when she was on a mission... Under Captain April, they went to this planet and got into some shenanigans with aliens from another dimension, and she lost her away team to another dimension, and she is going to go back and try and save them. So she takes off with this alien artifact, and she tries to complete her rescue mission. 
But of course, you can't really elude Kirk and Spock. As awesome as she is, and apparently she is awesome at pretty much everything, which is why she was nicknamed number one. Except for decision making. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Agreed. But of course, Kirk and Spock catch up to her. But then at the end, they decide to help her anyway, because they're moved by her story of losing her away team. So maybe honesty was just the best policy to begin with. You would think. Yeah. I don't know. What you, I really enjoyed this first volume. I thought it was a nice uh, way of tying together the different time periods. I thought that there was an interesting... It Like, I was intrigued. I thought there was suspense. I thought that it was fun to spend a lot of time with number one and to see her as a lieutenant like just you know trying to lead her first away mission and how you know her you know being a perfectionist who is almost perfect at everything and then having such a an immense failure um which i would i would say like felt very much like an example of hubris I thought that that was interesting to see her go through that and to be so driven to correct it. Yeah, I liked the book. It was good. Uh, I thought it was a good mixture of, you know, some thematic elements. Mostly for me, it was about command and what it takes to be a good leader. And then also enough plot to keep things moving but not get weighed down. And I thought the pacing was really good. One thing I liked was seeing Captain April... That was awesome. Mm -hmm. And I really thought that this, especially this first book, did a really good job of kind of tying in a lot of threads. So, like, when I was reading this first one, I was thinking to myself that this makes me want to rewatch Mirror Mirror. It makes me want to rewatch Conscience of the King. It makes me want to rewatch uh, the Counterclock incident from the animated series like there was a lot of really solid world building that didn't feel overwhelming it just kind of fit in very naturally to the larger trek universe and i appreciated that yeah i agree completely i mean the first book was definitely my favorite of the three and there were all those little references were delightful and they weren't overdone you weren't being hit over the head with it but if you knew the reference it was appreciated but there were also a lot of really great little things. I noticed um, when Una is speaking about her name, the phrase is used that this is the name that she chose to serve under because her name was not pronounceable for many other species. And, you know, something as little as that, that officers are given that choice is we, we talked about it a lot when we covered Uhura's song about what your name is and what you choose to be called. And how important that is. But also, you know, when we get to to Usildar, to this planet, and there are genderless, or at least believed to be genderless life forms, and they're using gender-neutral pronouns. That's something that I don't think would have happened in earlier or Trek books. So I, I feel like there's there's bits of progress in this as well. I really enjoyed the gender-neutral pronouns, too. It did kind of throw me that they kept switching between them and then she slash he. That was weird. Yeah, I I couldn't figure out why they would use here, H-I-R, and not use the, the, the subject pronoun that matches it. Instead, they use the S slash H-E. Yeah, that was... That was weird, and, you know, I was thinking maybe that they were doing that to clear up any confusion, but, I mean, if they really wanted to keep it as simple as possible, they could have just used they. they or they could have picked, like, there are other gender-neutral pronouns that have been created. They could have made a new one up for these aliens, or they could have used um, a different one that has been created, because it's it's not just, like, an example of... This is a convention that's been set, but it's because S slash H-E, the way that like we use it today, it means sh she or he. So it doesn't mean someone that doesn't, that is a third gender. It means someone who is either a woman or a man. So it doesn't really fit with these basically like slugs that don't have a gender. Um, but I did think it was a cool 
way into that for maybe some readers who have not had any introduction to third gender pronouns or terminology. And uh, I think that it was even cooler to see Una and the other, you know, uh, Starfleet people be like, oh, okay, cool. They're just aliens who don't have gender. And the first time we're introduced to it, it is Una talking about that. And she is just like, I can't tell what the gender of these aliens are. So I'm going to use these neutral pronouns in my head. Like, it's definitely yeah. not a big deal. So um, I just wanted to go back quickly to the the like little touches, because I thought that was something that worked well throughout the three books, where there's a lot of, especially, okay, so the background is very diverse. The background characters and also the characters serving on um, under April. I know some of them, I think, were established in previous novels, but certainly like every time you see a situation happening on the ship and they talk about people walking by in the background, you there's all kinds of different people, um, including like characters that we already know, like Lieutenant yes. Charlie Masters. I was so excited about that. Yeah, it was awesome to see her show up. And I think she's described as having something cool to do in the first book and engineering wise, I think. Um, and uh, there's a significant part for Lieutenant Rada in book three. Um, I think it was book three or book two. I'm not sure. I apologize. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I definitely noticed that. And it was nice to see there was just, you know, really good gender and also uh, ethnic racial diversity in the background. Now, if only they could have just left Kyle out of it. <laughs> but like back to the planet again. So basically, there's these two groups of people and what like slugs, slugs and people. So <laughs> there's uh, these slugs from another dimension called the Jator. And they basically came to our dimension because their universe is being destroyed. But they're really, really xenophobic and really... Um, fascist <laughs> I, I think that is an accurate description of them yes and they uh basically enslave this local indigenous population called the usildar and i thought that it could have easily felt like they were the the authors were treading a fine line with how the federation involves themselves in this dispute because um you know do we go into a, like, oh, we have to rescue the poor natives from these oppressors. The natives are, as usual, described as having brown skin, although they also have green hair and they have, like, prehensile toes or something so they can climb trees. Um, but I thought, even though it was, like, a somewhat stereotypical description of a quote-unquote primitive culture that there was respect demonstrated on the part of the Federation officers and that even though it may have clashed with the prime directive, uh, you know, a willingness to take responsibility for the destruction that was happening to their planet as a result of the Jatora incursion. Did you guys have any thoughts on the depiction of those two races? I think that they did an okay job at portraying and indigenous culture and at least pointing out in the pitfalls and having a civilization like the Federation kind of come upon this planet. And I've always thought the Prime Directive has some unique moral quandaries there. I myself would probably really suck at enforcing it. Um, I would totally like charge down there and be like, get off this planet! But I did think that it was kind of interesting to see that you had these leaders for the Usildur that would kept trying to make decisions and then their decisions would be undermined by the Federation. And it kind of made me uncomfortable mm -hmm. a handful of the times. There was a part, I want to say in the second book, where she Una is pressing forward and the leader of the Usildur that's in the other dimension is like, you're not listening to me. It's like you're I'm trying I'm trying mm -hmm. to talk I'm trying yeah. to talk to you and you won't listen. And she wasn't. And maybe she was right to do what she yeah. did, but I don't think that what they wanted was taken seriously by 
any of the cultures that they came in, the Klingons, the Federation, or the Jator, they all kind of just... <sighs> yeah, like, I think that they took the destruction of the planet seriously, but I agree they didn't take their culture very seriously, and that there are other times, like, at the end of book one, where she has to get to the Citadel, and they're telling her not to go, and they actually go so far as to, like, physically try to stop her because of their taboos, and... Like, because of this situation that she set in motion, and she was the one that originally, like, blew their cover to the Usildar in the first place, when they weren't supposed to let the people know they were on the planet, um, that again and again she has to keep violating their taboos and she doesn't have time to talk yeah. to them about it. And it kind of goes to what I think the main theme of these three books is anyway, which is when is it right to follow orders and when is it right to not follow them and what makes a good leader and where is the line between confidence and arrogance. And, I mean, we have time and time again all of these mutinies, all of these orders that are getting ignored um, for everywhere, the Romulans, the Klingons, the Jator, and even the Usildur have a young man that Una saved at one point, saving her life, but in defiance of her his own culture's justice system. And I just think it's a it's a really interesting th- thing to think about. Is like, when does following the orders of your leaders become immoral, and where is the line between? you know, taking a stand and doing what you think is right in defiance of what your leaders are telling you to do. Yes, totally agreed. Um, I think that's an interesting thread that runs through. And also we see repeatedly with the Jator that there's people in the civilization that question their leaders. And those people are always portrayed as heroes, as well as the people questioning at least, like, the absent, relatively absent Federation Starfleet leadership um, on, I guess, our heroes' side of things. Well, like, we had more than one. In the in the second book, we have a Romulan Tal Shiar taking over a ship and issuing orders that are resisted by the crew in various forms. And in the third book, we have a Klingon woman taking over a ship and then having that crew also resist orders it just it was interesting kind of through line throughout the the, all three books uh by the time we got to the klingon subplot book three i was like okay i get it but i mean at least it's consistent i guess which can i say that one of my favorite things about the first book is the end because it is very very rare that i get shocked by a anything really when it comes to storytelling like it's pretty rare and i was like say what we have a romulan spy yeah i agree i also didn't really see that coming and it threw a huge twist into the plot because you know i mean i guess i didn't know what else scotty and or not scotty spock and kirk were gonna be doing while uno was on this planet but now they have like two big situations going on for book two. One is that the reason that Una had to go do this apparently at this particular time to go rescue her former crewmates is that this planet is covered by the Organian peace treaty from Errand of Mercy. And there's going to be Klingon Federation peace talks, but, um, you know, an incursion into that planet that the Klingons are already trying to occupy and also subdue the indigenous Usildar um, would possibly jeopardize these peace talks. So she thinks she's more likely to succeed as an individual than taking the whole enterprise along. Um, So now Kirk and Spock have to deal with the fact that like, oh crap, the Klingons know they're on this planet. The Romulans have this super powerful alien device that at this point, like a lot of people just think it just massively kills people and can it's like a giant transporter beam of death that can go through shields and all sorts of stuff so Robins have a seriously bad weapon and then also there's these peace talks and the klingons maybe don't so much really want them to work so um yeah so like it sets up a really good start for book two i just was like what and then i was super excited to see where that went and i was also like Maybe you didn't need a woman to be your, bring you, like, clipboards and fold your pants. I love, too, that she was so offended by the job. 
I know. She's like, it's so demeaning. It's so beneath me. The stupid coffee. They tell us throughout the early books that the universe that the Jator come from is in danger and they're not going to survive there anymore. But they don't tell us why. So even if they know that they're being transported to this other dimension, they don't know what it actually is like there because there is zero information given about it. Yeah, and the Jator have been like radically altering this planet to the point that it's becoming inhospitable for humanoid life. And so it's reasonable to think that maybe the environment in this other universe isn't particularly hospitable hospitable to humans either. I also really loved the tie-in here to Mirror Mirror with the weapon and the mm-hmm. idea that in in the Mirror universe, Mirror Captain Kirk got his hands on it and... That, that I just thought that was such a cool tie-in. Yeah, for sure. So I guess, um, shall we move on to book two then, which is Best Defense by David Mack? Sure. So we basically, we got we got some peace talks going on. And I have to say, I really loved the early chapters of this book on the peace talks. There's a lot of different dynamics at play where Sarek and is leading the Federation team. And he's obviously very dedicated to making this work. Gorkon actually also realizes that they have to bargain in good faith here with the Federation because any other option means the Organians are going to come in and intervene and take away both their military powers. But the Klingons who are backing him up are not backing him up. They uh, they want blood and they want things to break down. So they're being unreasonable, including like the actual Klingon government. And I just really enjoyed how the description of those talks were going and the scene where like Gorkon's dancing with Amanda to Blue Danube and the Klingons are getting like all upset because it's so like, hu- or, you know, human or sentimental or not very like manly and violent um, so yeah, I, I enjoyed that. I really liked that he asked Sarek for permission and he was like, um, it's not my choice. Yeah, it's exactly. My wa- she does what my she wa- wants. My wife makes her own decisions and I abide by them. And I was like, yeah, you're the best. Yeah. And the, um, Romulans, oh, like, okay. Yeah. There's so much going on in this book. The Romulans are of course trying to exploit the fact they now have this device and, Maybe if they use it to disrupt the peace talks, the Organians will, like, disable both of these key enemies of theirs because, like, the Federation and the Klingons will blame each other, and then the Romulans can take over the universe, and then the Orions also think the same thing, and so they're messing up things, and there's... A little bit more for Uhura to do in this book as a result, because they're, the Fed, the Enterprise has to go to this planet and try and investigate stuff that's happening. So it was nice to see Uhura get to play a bit more of a role in book two. Apparently she's a hacker. Yeah, yeah that was cool. <laughs> and a really competent one. Yeah, right? Yeah. I can see it. Oh, totally. But it's just not what you expect. <laughs> Yeah. One thing I almost always like about the Star Trek books is that you get to spend more time on characters like Uhura and Chekhov and Sulu. Um, In this particular one, book two, I really enjoyed Sulu flying. I really love it when they they make Sulu into such a hero. Uh, He really saves their ass a couple times. I always really enjoy that. And then Uhura and Chekhov working together to, to do their little mystery solving while they're tracking down the Orion spies. I enjoyed all of that. The biggest problem I have with book two is that I feel like there was too much plot and not enough theme. So like the first book I thought was well balanced between the two and the second one, even though there's not a storyline that I thought particularly didn't work, I just felt like there was too many of them. Did you really need both the Orions and the Romulans doing basically the same sabotage? It just felt like a little bit too much, and um, and it seems like it was more like focused on, okay, this happened, and then now this happened, and then, okay, now this happened. And it was super, it was an enjoyable read. I just don't feel like it had quite the depth of theme that the first one had. There was definitely a lot going on, 
and I mean, in addition to everything we've already talked about, there was the Joanna McCoy storyline, mm-hmm. which I have to say, I do really kind of enjoy fatherly bones, but um, it was it was just another thing. And it made it for a, a fast and enjoyable read. But I would agree with you. There was a, a lot going on. Yeah. And I would say that, you know, partly because of that, it felt like there was action for the sake of action happening. Um, and there uh, were moments in both this book and there was one moment in book three where it like, verged on or definitely went into damsel in distress territory and um i and it didn't seem like there was really a particular reason for it so in book two there's like one moment where it doesn't get there but like um the klingons are kind of threatening sarek and um that you know because gorkon's disappeared he's been transferred into the other universe and uh the the Klingon general basically is like, I want an answer or else. And then Sarah goes, or else what? And he says, we'll find out just how much your wife really means to you. Like there, this whole idea over and over again, that like we need to threaten women in order to emotionally motivate men. And while Joanna McCoy, when she is kind of abducted uh, by this like drug addicted Orion, she saves herself from that situation in a pretty rad way. But it again is like, let's make McCoy worry. And then at the end she gets transferred into the parallel universe and then we get to see McCoy worry more about her. Um, So I don't know. I just felt like it was, that was a little bit tired and unnecessary. Yeah. At first I was like, wow, they really just brought Joanna McCoy in here to get taken hostage. Did they? But at least she basically saved herself and I did like seeing McCoy and McCoy. That was nice. And so, like, at first I was a little bit wary, but in the end I still think that she made for a nice addition and they did let her do some stuff. I just, especially towards the beginning of her storyline, I was like, why? Yeah, exactly. I had the same thought. I think it, it got better and I was less leery of it, but certainly when it started... Where, you know, McCoy is telling her, like, you have to get somewhere safe. And she's like, I'm a nurse. I'm not going to. And then, you know, she gets abducted right after. And it's like, she, you know, she's getting, like, blindfolded and threatened. And it's pretty gross. Um, but you're right. It does. She does get, like, actually more of a character and more to do later. And, I mean, her arc is basically her and McCoy reconciling and also her getting McCoy to understand that he doesn't get to make her decisions. So that was nice. Mm -hmm. There were a few other little things about book two that, you know, made me give a side eye a little bit. Uh, One was that the the constant descriptions of Una in the other universe uh, with her raven hair and her her glistening perspiration. I'm like, come on. No, her delicate sheen of perspiration. Yeah, this is You're not, talking about sweat. Not that character, <laughs> yes. right? Yeah, it just felt like it reminded me there was a McSweeney spoof about like what um, if male characters were written like men write women characters. And this like it's it, it felt like a little bit like the women characters were not ever allowed to be unattractive because yes. at this point when they're talking about her like delicate sheen of perspiration, this is after the very end of book one where she's like, you know, escaped, gone down to this planet. She's run through a brambly forest and across this muddy field, fallen into a swamp and been like hauled up the side of the citadel. And then, and then she has a delicate sheen of perspiration. Yeah. And then like ends up in a desert in the other universe. <laughs> And uh, and then it's like, like, let's be honest here. Also, if you have a delicate sheen of perspiration on the back of your hand, literally every every other inch of your skin is sweating. <laughs> like, you don't <laughs> like it's OK to like, you know, kind of stink and not look that great after all that. It's OK. That's how people work. <laughs> I know she's number one, but I still don't buy it. <laughs> but. The the other thing I noticed that I know that Jared picked up on too because we talked about it before was the the sort of background trans character, which was neat that there was this background trans character, but I wasn't 
super sure about the way they described that person. It was like, because of her low voice, her transition was obvious. It was like, wait a minute. No. Yeah. Yeah, so I have it right here. It's like Chief Nomi Reed. She was tall but slight of frame and her jet black hair was quaffed in a smart bob. The faintest hint of a deeper register in her slightly nasal voice suggested the transitional nature of her gender, but there was no mistaking her authority as her deputies and their Klingon harassers all froze in place. And yeah, um, so we definitely talked about it. It's problematic to say that you could like infer someone's gender from their voice, but we also talked about we weren't 100% sure how you would have done it differently to make yeah, it that's clear. Yeah, that's a tough one. Yeah, because with, you know, other background characters, you can use other descriptors to signify race. Or like we know Charlene Masters is an African-American woman. Right. Or we can, maybe this is not the best thing. I don't know. But like Raul Martinez, you can mm-hmm. assume that this is a Hispanic man. Yeah. Right. Yep. And, and Tim Shimizu. Yeah. Right. So but how do you how do you have trans characters that are background characters and have a very the one short scene without saying, oh, and by the way, this person is trans. Yeah. You know. Yeah, because like not all trans people do use alternate pronouns. So, uh, you know, you can't I, I would say like not even necessarily a majority do it's <clears throat> um, so. You can't just, I mean, sometimes you can. I've seen it done where a character was just described with alternate pronouns and you infer from that. Mm -hmm. But I liked that they, he immediately like moved from that to saying though that her authority was really evident. Yes. No misgendering. Yeah, exactly. And like no one, no one misgenders her, says she's a man or anything. So that was good, but then it was unfortunate because I was like, oh, okay, cool, there's, like, a trans cop in charge of this planet's security, and then you basically never see her again, like, very little. So that was kind of disappointing. I was like, I guess maybe just do more with that character would have been nice, because otherwise all you have is these, like, giant evil genderless slugs that are (laughs) not binary gendered. So... Maybe you could have done a little bit, especially like, I don't know. Okay, I guess it wouldn't have made any sense given her position to bring her back in book three. But there was a lot of room to do more with trans characters or really anything in book three. I mean, it's it's a difficult thing to to talk about even because I want to say it was an excellent try. And -hmm. you're definitely painting that character in a positive light. But just even the way she was described or or that information was provided felt... Funky. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, you know, but I've... I, I would be interested in if any listeners had any ideas for a better way to present that. Like Absolutely. Like to present a background character. Because I've done a lot of thinking about, well, you know, maybe someone could have mentioned it or something but then i'm not sure that would have been less problematic like maybe have someone who knew that character before she transitioned or something i don't know but then that might have introduced its own problems so Mm -hmm. i i don't know exactly how you do it without falling into some kind of stereotype it just if you want to leave the rest of the book as is and just kind of throw in this background character and be like by the way they're trans yeah I don't know. I mean, okay, here's, okay, now that I'm thinking about this, <laughs> they could have just said, Nomi Reed, the trans woman, although then it would be like, why didn't you call all the other women cis women? So, mm-hmm. okay, I'm I'm just thinking because there was a lot I also noticed in book two of descriptions of skin colors that were kind of unnecessary. And like it, it happened to characters of all different kinds of races. So I don't think it was particularly a racist thing to do. I'm not saying that. It was just, it was like, there were descriptions of uh, Una being very pale and descriptions of Uhura's, you know, whatever, dark skin. Um, and I was like, yeah, we know. We watched the show. I've always wondered that about some of these Star Trek books. All of the time that is spent describing the physical characteristics of our main characters. Like, we know. We're aware. Yep. I think description can be hard. 
And I think the the main thing that you want is you want to get a sense of the character without the audience having to really notice that you're doing that. But it's tough. It's tough to integrate that stuff. Yeah, for sure. I did want to talk about Sadira a little more. Okay, so I was thinking, because as I said, the end of book one was awesome. And I was like, yeah. And then I was like, oh, cool, we'll have another Romulan woman to be like, yeah, badass. But I feel like she did not live up to the hype. She actually reminded me a little bit of Sila in that it was like she kind of came out of nowhere as a shadowy figure and like, ooh, shocking end. And then when we actually get into her, like, doing her dastardly plotting, she kind of sucks at it. And then also mm-hmm. she was so one-dimensional it was just like there was a handful of times where she was like, "Let's be evil," basically. And then the the Romulan plot went away entirely, and it wound up being lots of Klingons. Yeah, I mean, so yeah, so Sadira is the like woman who was the Tal Shiar agent who was being the yeoman in the first book, and she basically, yeah, I think that it's like saying she's like Sila is good. Like she kind of comes across as just like she's actually a human woman. She was has risen in the Tal Shiar. No one on the ship likes her, and she basically throws giant temper tantrums. And her, yeah, and you're right. Like at the end of the day, she's just suggesting they do things that make zero sense out of I don't know. I need to control, make, keep control. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it was cool to see her the effect that she had on the politics on the ship between the male officers who are military and not tal shiar but i agree that she didn't 100 percent do it for me i just i would have liked to see more of a motivation for her beyond like ha 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 because that's what it kind of felt like like there was <clears throat> there were all these times where she was like hate will win and i'm like okay like <laughs> a little over the top I wasn't 100% clear how she became a human Tal Shiar agent. Did you guys grasp, get that? Did I just miss I that? I feel like she grew up there, but I don't really remember. They There was definitely a backstory about how she grew up and was raised. Possibly that like her colony was taken over. Yeah, I feel like that the sounds right. The, the impression I got, well, okay, so here's a good example of this could have been interesting motivation. Was she overdoing it because she was trying to prove herself? Well, if that's what was happening, it was not clear enough. It just kind of felt like, except for the very beginning where she was like, I'm so glad I don't have to slag around coffee anymore. After that, she just became very, we're going to do the mission, even though... We're doing it incompetently, and I'm going to ignore everybody else's very sensible suggestions, and we're always going to do it my way. And it just felt very strange. Like, I didn't understand why she was doing the things that she was doing. Other than evil. Yeah, other than she was so sick of delivering (laughs) coffee that (laughs) any future in which anyone ever had to do that again made her... I really did love it, though, when she's, like, on the other bridge and she's like, hey, Kirk, what up? You can take your coffee and shove it. Bye. I was that was so endearing. Okay, that was so (laughs) endearing. And then she just ruined it. It was such a solid introduction to, like, this badass Romulan spy who was going to outmaneuver Kirk and be this formidable, steely foe. And then she just... kind of came across as like mm, petty i love your yeah. choice of the word endearing it was i mean how many yeomen really wanted to do that let's be real how many of them wanted to take that coffee and like blow it up with a phaser instead of heat it with a phaser you knew that she was going to be important in some way because of how much time was spent on describing her I thought that maybe she was in, like, another book or something that I just hadn't read, or maybe they had mentioned her in some other episode, and that's why she was being featured. But she was, like, the new yeoman who was over-eager. 
They described Lorna a lot, too. Oh, yeah. Lorna was awesome. And Lorna is in other books. Um, but, like, in book one, there's, in the description of Robert April's crew, Lorna, the first officer, is awesome. And I loved her. Just want to say that. But, yeah. So. Kind of made me laugh, though, that Kirk was so, like, frustrated about his yeoman betraying him. He was so mad. It's like, no one can replace Rand. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> no, no entitlement at all. <laughs> Who, who's going to get him his coffee? What will he sign? <laughs> oh, I, I know. And it's like so hilarious that they have this alien device that they've hidden from Starfleet. And the only people who know about it are the captains and the first officers of the Enterprise and the yeoman. <laughs> well, to be fair, she put listening devices in there. So it's not like he told her about it. It's just that she's been spying on them. But you would also think yeah. that there would be, like, a standard operating procedure for, like, sweeping for bugs. And also just for, like, security screening, like, that maybe you'd know that this human grew up on Romulus, if that's the <laughs> case. And maybe, like, not saying that you should discriminate based on the planet they grew up, but... If your yeoman has access to the captain's quarters at all times... I feel like if someone gives you a resume and there's, like, that many years missing out of their thing where they were doing... I know, and it just <laughs> says, like, hey, I was working at a coffee shop. And then maybe they check your references and they're like, I don't know who that person was. Mm -hmm. And then you find out, hey, she was a Tal Shiar agent. Okay. I don't know. Check your references, Federation. That's what I'm saying. I do think it's kind of great that they, they did make a yeoman a spy because people dismiss them so yes. much. And I thought that that was a neat twist. As I said, I was completely on board for the very beginning of that storyline. And I wish that it had gone further. That would have been cool. All right. So book three. it's time to talk about book three, Purgatory's Key by Dayton Ward and Kevin Delmore. Nearly 400 pages, nearly 100 of them are summaries. <laughs> Summaries or Chekhov building a probe. Right, that's another yeah. 100 pages. So you've got 100 <laughs> pages of summaries of the first two books, and then another 100 pages of Chekhov building a probe. Yeah, I mean, I think it's safe to say we were all slightly disappointed by this installment, although I'm, I'm like, really curious to know how they assign who gets what parts of the plot in trilogies like this, because... By the time it got to this point, there just really wasn't that much left to cover. Like, we yeah. we basically know they're going to rescue the people, or at least some of the people from the alternate universe, because we know Sarek and Gorkon don't die, and they're both in there now. And so the really, like, the only question is how. And so much happens in book two. That yeah, How exactly. much is left for book three. Yeah, and it's all wrapped up. Like you said, like the Romulans are just done. Like what, there would be no point in bringing the Romulans back because there was like the one ship, they lost the transfer key, the ship's totally disabled, Sidira's dead. So there's no point in bringing back the Romulans. The A lot of book one was flashbacks that's covered, so you can't do that. I'm joking about it somewhat, but I did think that the, the summaries of the previous books that were in this book <laughs> were excessive. I understand that when you've got a series, because I read series all the time, that you sometimes want to give a reminder of what happened. But there were literally, like, pages worth of summaries of what happened. Yeah, I think it was it was the first 40 pages. Yeah, in the prior book. And then they summarized it again when talking about the Klingon crew. Mm-hmm. So you well, got the same summary twice. It was and it was it was a little, I don't know, I felt like it was a little, I don't know how you would make it less clunky. I think that amount of summary just like has to be clunky. But you would have like Spock would go talk to someone else on the Enterprise and be like, oh, and here's the whole story. Just don't give the whole story. <laughs> Assume that someone reading book three has read books one and two. Well, and then I wondered whether there was also a requirement that it, the book meet a certain length, because all the books are roughly the same number of pages. And maybe if they wrote the rest of it and were like, seriously, I can't write anything else about this story, <laughs> which would be fair. I, get, I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, so book three, in addition to, yeah, there's the part about Chekhov building a probe, which felt to me like... 
Technobabble, generally not the part most people appreciate about Star Trek, but there were like many chapters of Technobabble in this about like how Chekhov is building this probe that will work in the other universe and send signals back. And I mean, I guess it was cool that we got to see how much Spock appreciates Chekhov and, and Uhura appreciates Chekhov and everyone appreciates Spock and Uhura. And there was a lot of sort of using these scenes to try to add character moments, but I felt like they weren't particularly new or exciting character moments. Like, oh, Spock's sad that his dad is missing and McCoy is mad that his daughter's missing and everyone's empathizing with each other because their family members are missing. Yeah. I thought it would have been better if we spent more time in the other dimension for this one. Because we spent so much of book two in our dimension with the Klingons and the Romulans and the Orions and all of that shenanigans going on. It would have been kind of cool to have the third book be way more focused on the other dimension and maybe uh, beefed up their interactions with the Jator. Mm Because I found that to be mostly the most interesting part of this book is specifically, so we've got this Jator leader who is basically a xenophobic slug that is so afraid of different people and cultures that he is dismissing his own scientists and cracking down on dissent and free will among his own people. I thought that was a pretty interesting topic. Yeah. No no relation to anything in our current world. No, yeah, I mean, I couldn't relate at all. But anyways, I just, I, I thought that that, that that section, like all of those sections where we had yet another scientist going rogue, it, I feel like that could have been beefed up and that theme that we were talking about that goes through all three books really could have been honed well here. Like, when is it right to fight back against the evil that your people are doing or that your government is doing. And that could have been really cool. And I feel like we didn't get enough of it at all. Yeah, I agree. Because basically, um, this book introduces this whole new thing that I'm, I at first was not super into, which was this idea that the parallel universe that they land in, which is like this weird timeless like desert where time has no meaning and they don't need to drink water and stuff like that. Um, and then they get to some trees and they meet the Usolar and the people that um, have survived there from the, the Enterprise and the Klingons and uh, Sarek and Joanna and everyone. And then um, Una... Martinez and Shimizu go off to find the Jator city and they get imprisoned. Um, But like from the, so that happens like right at the beginning of the book where they were already imprisoned by the the end of book two. I can't quite remember. Um, But the very, very quickly in book three, we learn that basically all of that is a shared illusion. Like we aren't sure exactly that it's a shared illusion, but it's clear that there is something that's not like that's uncanny about this universe that Una can manipulate the environment with her mind. And Sarek is psychically communicating with Amanda in the other universe and also thinking maybe something is going on and falling into these weird trances. So Then, like, they basically get out of prison really pretty quickly. Like, they sleep one night in prison, they get out, they get chased a little bit, and then they're pretty much back with their To be fair, Starfleet does spend a lot of time getting imprisoned and a lot of time (laughs) escaping those prisons. So at this point, you'd figure that they'd be experts at it. Yes. Yes, exactly. Uh, Yes. So... Yeah, I agree with you. I'm basically backing up what you're you're saying and putting, picking up what you're putting down. Well, <laughs> one of the things that I found really, really interesting is the idea of the Jator xenophobia being an, like antithetical to their actual nature. Like, so they lived mm. in a universe where there was no other sentient life. So they had literally never dealt with even the idea of other sentient life. And it does make sense to me that you would react poorly to that, to finding out that there's a a whole nother universe filled with all of these different kinds of sentient beings when you have been the only one in your universe forever. So I actually think that's very interesting. It's like how much of xenophobia is about 
lack of proximity rather than proximity. So, like, how much of it is not knowing anything about other cultures, you know? So Yeah, like total ignorance breeding. Yeah, exactly. And and this idea where you have all of these Jatora, especially the scientists, insisting that they love life and they care about life, but the first thing that they do when they meet another sentient species is they enslave them. And I think that's a very interesting concept that should have been explored more and was very interesting to me. And the shared consciousness thing didn't make sense to me. And I was reading this and thinking, I'm going to need, I'm going to need some Sue's science corner because this doesn't make any sense. And then I kind of got into it when Sarek was kind of like bringing them back together and like finding each other's I thought that was kind of interesting but the concept itself doesn't make any sense to me. I I really disliked it when they were on the planet and it was about like manipulating things with your mind because none of this is real. Um because at that point you're still not really sure like are people actually dying when we see them dying. There's this weird part where all the starfleet people start attacking each other. Um you see people who have died grotesquely and then like Una's pulling a lantern out of the ground with her mind. Um, and I was just going like, seriously? Well, she, she's like, like, here, here's some phasers, shoot them with your mind. And it's like, okay. Yeah. Really? Well, we spent so much of book two there with, in, in the other universe with them saying, Wait, wait a minute, we don't have to drink? When's the last time you slept? So I felt like in book three we could have gotten to the whole this is a dreamscape sort of thing revelation a lot faster and then spent more time with Sarek in the, the I guess, actual other dimension. There's <laughs> so many mm-hmm. levels. Um, yeah, so the 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 planet the desert planet got pretty dull to me pretty quickly but once we got you know Sarek linking people together or pulling them out of stasis or whatever you want to call it like I was interested I'm not sure exactly how it was supposed to work I don't know if I can science this out for you Andy but... uh, there's there's filaments I like and people's <laughs> minds are in them and you can travel through the void and link them with your mind what we really need is Sarek science corner we need him to explain yes. it <laughs> Except for we have to spell science P-S-I. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah, I mean, so, like, Sarek leaves the shared illusion, and then Una does, and then they're able to, like, bring the other people into the not-illusion space, mm-hmm. which is apparently everyone floating in light or something. And I'm not really sure how that's not an illusion, but, uh, it, I mean, that also lends an interesting thing that they didn't explore about the Jator, about Warian, who's, like, the dictator guy, because apparently he and his followers, the xenophobes, are, like, refusing, like, they have ad- fully adopted this illusion as real, even though they, like, at some level know that it's an illusion, that it's, like, a space that was set up to help them transition between universes. But they're, like, so dedicated to this idea of power and their own superiority that they have to like they want to continue playing in this like violent fear uh fear laden i guess existence um so we also get a significant klingon subplot that just kind of comes comes out of where nowhere and goes nowhere a little Ugh. yeah kind of um i was so, so uninterested in the klingons <laughs> Yeah, I wanted to be because I was interested in Visla, who was like the dishonored woman commander. I thought like that is a character I could be interested in. And um, so she's basically leading this ship full of other people who's who have tainted honor, but, you know, enough honor that they've got to be in the military, but no one really wants to work with them. So they stuck them all on this ship together. And I kind of liked some of the hints that were given, like her security officer maybe is her friend with benefits slash dueling teacher. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> that that could be cool. Um, and uh, she basically decides that Kirk has made this really big mistake saving all of these Klingons in the last book because they should have just died with honor, including her son. And so now there's like 
people trapped in the other dimension and uh, Klingons who were like not allowed to fight to the death. And so she just kind of has a vendetta against Kirk and she takes her rust bucket dump of a ship to the planet where there's another Klingon ship that's there to kind of make just like oversee their science experiments on the planet. There's also a cool Klingon woman scientist on the planet who doesn't really end up going Which anywhere. Which is sad because she um, was cool. I, I dug her. Yeah. And I also wanted her to like, I was also like, oh, cool. A woman scientist on the planet who's like, she seemed like she could have mirrored the Jator scientist. Like she was kind of standing up to her commanders and the pressure they were putting her mm-hmm. under. But then she dies. Yeah. Frustrating. Yeah. Um, and Visla like, tries to attack the Enterprise and ends up having the, like, male commander of the other ship destroy their ship. And ultimately, she... Fails a lot. ...takes over their ship, but then dies and gets killed for failing. So, yeah. And I don't know. I was kind of... Because there was a lot of her talking about her son and his honor. And I kind of wanted to, like, see them reunited and have... I don't know, some payoff to that storyline, but I felt like it was an attempt to fill space and introduce some more suspense, but it I don't know if it really succeeded. Yeah, so at the end, everybody is saved, kind of. Martinez has some mental health issues, but for the most part, everybody gets saved from the other universe, and they're going to help the Usildur get their planet back. And... They've got the Jator, and they're going to help resettle them, and Una's not going to face any consequences for stealing the key and running off. Nobody's going to face consequences for anything, apparently. No, she goes to turn herself into Kirk, and Kirk says, I'm not going to arrest you, I'm going to stand with you. And there's this whole thing about, like, we don't know what kind of charges they'll bring, but probably nothing, because we help these people. Yeah. Yeah. And we got the thing back for the Romulans, even though we lost it to the Romulans to begin with. Because there are no consequences in Star Trek. (laughs) Wait. (laughs) That's not right, is it? So, overall, I, I liked this trilogy. I thought it was a fun couple of books. I just think that they were way better at setting things up than they were at paying them off. Yeah, I just wanted to super quickly talk about Martinez's outcome because it was not really dwelt on, but there were a couple of parts that I found a bit problematic when we go back to some you know, discussions we've had on like ableism and mental health on the show previously. Um, one of them is this whole thing where Uno's basically like, I was prepared that any one of them might be dead, but I wasn't prepared for this. <laughs> so like, this idea that it's better to be dead than be disabled. Like in his case, he has a severe disabling trauma that he, they say like very well may recover from in time. Um, Yeah. So, you know, maybe not so cool, but like, I mean, I, I get the thought there that she had that she, it wasn't something she had anticipated, but it was just kind of an unfortunate response when that was like really the only response we had to his situation. Um, And then there's this whole thing that, like, you know, we're going to send him to Vulcan because maybe on Vulcan there's someone who can help him. Because I'm like, seems to me like he had a a trauma that would be, like, similar to traumas that, you know, we currently treat in mental health today. That, like, 300 years from now, you seriously, like, have to go to Vulcan to get treatment for trauma that you endure in Starfleet. (laughs) There's only, like, one place in the whole galaxy you could go, or universe. <laughs> anyway, that was just my two cents on that. Yeah, it was it was unfortunate. But, yeah. I mean, but, I mean, I guess at least there, it was shown, like, it wasn't super perfectly easy for everyone at the end. I also, like you, thought it was a little bit too neatly wrapped up after, especially all that Una had done and Kirk and Spock in helping her. All right, any final thoughts? Are we going to rate it? Sure. (laughs) I was going to do three out of four fascist slugs that you should resist. Yes. I will rate this four out of five opportunities to taunt Kirk that you're not pouring his coffee anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. I would say four out of five stolen alien artifacts that transfer you to another dimension. There you go. 
<laughs> All right. Well, uh, thanks for this discussion of Legacies Book Club. Andy, where can people find you elsewhere on the internet or in another universe? <laughs> the easiest place to find me is on Twitter at First Time Track. Sue, what about you? Well, I do plan to be spending a lot of time in an alternate universe. But otherwise, you can find me on Twitter at Spaltor, S-P-A-L-T-O-R. Yeah, the easiest way to get in touch with me is to go into a hypnotic trance and say my wife <laughs> over and over again. <laughs> but if that, if you lack telepathic abilities, then you can find me on trekkiefeminist.tumblr.com or at J-A-R-R-A-H Penguin on Twitter. And you can contact our show at crew at women at warp.com or on our Facebook page or Twitter at women at warp. Or our website, womenatwarp.com, and check out our new blog, because it's been awesome. Great. So thanks for joining us again, and thanks for listening.